The year 586 in Israel's history was a very tragic year. It was really a turning point. The Babylonians had been besieging the city for a year and a half, demanding its surrender, and the people inside had continued to believe that they could withstand it. But archaeologists tell us on the 18th of July in the year 586, the Babylonian army broke through the walls of Jerusalem and took the city and all the people who were still alive. The next thing they did, of course, was tear down and burn all the buildings in the city, including the beautiful temple of, of Solomon's that was considered the seventh wonder of the world. All the houses were burned, the palaces. I just read lately that limestone, which is the common building material of, of Jerusalem, will even burn if it gets hot enough. So when the soldiers left, forcing the people who were still alive to, to march to Babylonia, they left behind just a huge hump of, of broken stone and charred embers. All the wood was gone. And it seemed like the end for the, for the Jewish nation. Jeremiah had told them that they were going to spend 70 years in exile. And so I'm not sure the people were prepared for that. But that was going to be their, their end. The people had a lot of worries. The, area, the north part of the country, Israel, had gone into uh, exile about a hundred years earlier, and they had disappeared as a people. The Assyrian policy was to take and transplant little groups all around in somebody else's territory so they could not rebel. And for all practical purposes, those Jews would disappear. And in their place, others would be brought into northern Israel, and we have the Samaritan results of that, neither Jew nor Gentile. For the Jewish people that went off to Babylonia, life changed immensely. Three important things happened. The first is that they were cleansed of their idolatry. That's what had brought them there to their situation. They refused to worship God alone. And God had warned them, if you don't change your ways, there's going to be punishment. And now they were in, in Babylonia. But they saw what idolatry could be on every side. And in the end, they cleansed, were cleansed or cleansed themselves from all of that kind of worship from the kind of pagan world that they were living in. I think we can understand a little bit of our own situation as what is happening as, as Christianity begins to fade and paganism comes in to take over. And the Jews saw that happening. Secondly, as the temple now was gone and destroyed and far away, a new institution grew up that we would know as the synagogue, something very special, a kind of Jewish church where they could come and, and pray and read God's word and worship him. And it became a part of the Jewish world and the Jewish nation and lives down to today along the way. And then thirdly, they now were no longer just confined to little Judah. They were a people who were living in a new land with new opportunities, and they began to spread out. They became a slowly but surely a cosmopolitan people 
When I read about Paul's travels, for instance, the first place he goes is to the Jewish colony in whatever city that he goes to. And then he looks up the opportunity to speak in the synagogue. They were simultaneous. And it became a part of them, and it grew out of the, out of the uh, exile period. And they also multiplied. Probably by the end of that 70 years, they were a significant part of the Babylonian empire on there. And then as God had promised, change came. The Babylonians were overturned by the Persians. And they had an opportunity to, to make everything different. The great king Cyrus had a totally different view on what to do with, with immigrants and other people. He felt that if they returned to their own land, took their own gods with them back there, and worshipped there, there would be peace. Peace with the people and peace with their gods. And so he made a proclamation in 538, almost 70 years to the day, that peoples could return. And the Jewish people began to take their opportunity to do that. Interestingly enough, when everything was said, there was only 50,000 who decided to make the return. There was probably 500,000 Jews living in Babylonia at that time, but they chose because of their new life and their opportunities there not to return to Judah and what would be a very different and difficult life. Probably no different than the world today that there are still millions of Jews in the United States and France and England who still remain here rather than make the journey back and, and settle in, in Israel at this point. But the group decided to return to rebuild the, the temple under Zerubbabel, who was uh, one of the uh, long relatives of David and the high priest Joshua. So they made their way back, ostensibly to take and to rebuild the temple. And just about as soon as they got back, they laid the foundation of the temple and were working on rebuilding it. It would never be like Solomon's, of course, but it would be a new start. But after two years, their enemies stepped in, sent word to the Persian king that these people were working for rebellion and had other ideas, and so the work stopped. And so for 16 years, nothing happened. Then God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to motivate the people to get the temple done. And so they returned to the work, and within 16 years had the new temple finished. And uh, as the book of Ezra says, the uh, old people cried and the young people shouted with joy, the old people remembering what Solomon's temple had been those that were left, and the young people, of course, it was a new beginning for them, and they were pleased for it. And then for almost 60 years, uh, nothing really happened. Um, some wag wrote a little note about anything happening, and it's entitled, Everybody, Somebody, Anybody, Nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got upset because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought somebody could do it, but nobody realized anybody was going to do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nothing 
did, was done, and anybody could have done it. Now, the point is for 60 years, Jerusalem remained a ruin, and everybody decided and knew that something should be done, but just like this, nobody did anything. Along the way, a young man by the name of Ezra came into the picture. He was a scribe who studied God's word. He was from the priestly line. He had a, had a desire to see something happen within Israel or within Judah. And so he sought permission to return and to see what he could do to uh, encourage and revive things in, in little Judah. Now, it doesn't say how this happened. It just says that he went to the king, and the king fulfilled all his requests. In fact, um, it was not a large group who, who would go back this time with Ezra, about 5,000 though. But he was able to raise a huge amount of silver and gold. How he had authority and, and the ability to do this, we don't know, but it happened. And so Ezra and the 5,000 made the three-month journey. It took about three months from Babylonia back to the little state of Judah. And he came back, and, the, uh, and these, this group was welcomed. And you can imagine the priests would have been very happy to welcome Ezra. The uh, temples in, the, in ancient times were really the banks because people thought that they were secure, or the most secure buildings and things. So... When Ezra got back to Jerusalem, the first thing is he checked in at the temple and they counted all the money and it was there and they stuck it away in one of the storerooms and then Ezra went about his business of trying to get people to change. The, the major problem at this time was that there was a good deal of intermarrying between the small, rather small Jewish community and the outside communities that surrounded little Judah. Most of it probably started at the top where if you wanted to progress in society, you would try to find a wife, for instance, for your son, who could marry some prestigious ruler or noble in another group. And she would come and bring with her, unfortunately, her gods and idols. And so what was happening is that the Jewish community from the bottom up, was beginning to be contaminated by these intermarriages. Often at the bottom, the same thing happened in a way. It was the Jews there didn't have much money, and so they couldn't afford very big dowries, so they couldn't marry other Jewish girls, and so they too would marry the poor people outside, the foreigners, and they would come in, and those women too would bring their gods with them. And so... Little Judah was being corrupted from top and bottom. And Ezra realized that something had to change. And so he tried to bring this change about. But as the book indicates, he really didn't have the clout. Evidently, uh, he was considered a good man, had a good message, but he didn't have the authority to do this. And you can imagine trying to change Marriages maybe that had been going on for some time, even children in them. And so it would be a very difficult situation. It would have been so much better if there would have been a change of hearts and the whole families. But it didn't happen. And so 
about 13 years later, another man was touched in a special way. This man was Nehemiah. His name means God comforts. And I, as we learn about his life, uh, we can believe that he need, needed all of that. The interesting thing about the book of Nehemiah is it's, it's probably his own journal. We don't have a lot of first-hand first information in Scripture, but Nehemiah seems to be someone who kept records. And so uh, Ezra probably took and edited them. So we're not sure 100% if we get everything that Nehemiah actually said. But so much of what we have in Nehemiah has that first-person feel to it. And so I'm reading from Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakiah. In, in the Old Testament, people didn't have afternames. So instead of Dwight Paulson, I would be Dwight, the son of Theodore. And that worked too. And so we get a lot of names across the Old Testament, uh, the sons of. While I was in the capital Shusa, which was one of the capitals of, of Persia, one, Hananiah, one of my brothers, probably one of his actual brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah has God's touch upon his life. He, he thinks about the people in Judah. He thinks about their situation. And he thinks it could be changed probably if, if Jerusalem again were a functioning city. As we've seen, nothing has been done for 150 years. It's, it has remained a ruin along the way. And so he, he lifts up a wonderful prayer, a prayer to God and a as so often he uh, confesses that he has been a failure and wicked, when in reality he's really probably talking about his people. But it's a prayer of, of honesty and, and uh, a prayer that goes up to God, and, and he's a man who often prays. Sometimes on the fly he's a man who sends up a prayer to God on there. And then he ends this little section and says, I was cupbearer, to the king. Now, as we look at it, we're, we're not sure exactly what that entails. Today, he would have probably been called the, the head of security. In the uh, Persian days, one of the favorite ways of disposing of people they didn't like was poisoning them. And so you can understand why the king always worried about his food and his drink. Some years ago, the, the former king of, of uh, Jordan, Hussein, wrote a book about his life entitled On Easy Lies the Head. Took it from Shakespeare. And there was, there was good cause for it. 
He had been standing in line to meet some British dignitaries when an assassin shot at him and his uncle. His uncle at that time was, was head of Jordan and killed him. The bullet hit a medal on Hussein's uniform, and so instead of killing him, bounced off, number one. Sometimes later, he, he had always had problems with his eyes, and one day as he was going to put his eye drops in, he, he tested a drop and noticed that the drop burned right through the basin. Somebody had changed his eye drops for some kind of an acid, so he escaped again. And then all the cats began to disappear in the yard around the, the palace. And when security checked up on that, they found out that the cook was uh, trying some of his more exquisite poisons uh, to do away with the king. So when Hussein said, on easy lives ahead, he knew exactly what he was talking about. So the kings at this point were very concerned about who was serving them and how they were being served. Now, we have no idea how Nehemiah came to his post. He... Uh, he was an outsider in a sense. He was a Jew. More than likely, the man was probably a, a eunuch. In our day of sexual world and all that goes on, we, we can't imagine anything like that. But in ancient times, being made a eunuch was not an unusual factor at all. And for the king in his palace, it was almost a common thing. You do not want someone, some male, wandering through your harem. And so becoming a eunuch was almost a given factor. And while we cannot understand how anyone would do this, sometimes family actually made some son a eunuch so that they could serve in the king's bureaucracy. It was a, a kind of uh, understood sort of thing. Now, we think it's something that could never happen in our time, but some of you maybe have actually visited China and Beijing and the so-called Forbidden City. It's now a big tourist area, but in ancient days, it was the head of the, the king of emperor of, of, of China. But as powerful he was, the Forbidden City was basically run by a group of of eunuchs, and um, it, the Manchu dynasty, which was the last of the dynasties, and the ones that would have the last of the eunuchs, was destroyed or overturned by Chiang Kai-shek back in 1912. But it turned a whole group of, of uh, eunuchs into the regular world, and I there was a little announcement some years ago in 1996. It said the last Chinese eunuch died. So that's how long, and not so long within, even within our lifetime, that this was a part of life. It's interesting that Isaiah, writing some couple of hundred years before Nehemiah, wrote this message. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, 
To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And it's interesting when we read the book of Nehemiah, he never goes to the temple. He wouldn't have been allowed in. The Mosaic law forbid it. And yet in his heart, he has this great desire to see Jerusalem reestablished, to become again the capital of this province, and so that it can take its message to the world, and so that it can be a people who have a say in what is happening to them. As it is at this point in time, they are basically ruled from Samaria by a governor there who has no place and, and no intention of helping the Jews. And so the only answer to that is the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And that is what is on Nehemiah's heart. Now, as I said about Ezra, you wonder how in the world he was able to come, because it's the same king, Artaxerxes, he ruled for 30 years. It was both the greatest part of the Persian Empire and the beginning of the end. But both of these came basically at the beginning. How did he get in to see the king, and how did he be blessed as he was? I'm not sure when any of you lately talked to the mayor. Have any of you had a chance to talk to the governor? And I doubt if any of us have been close to the president. And yet the king let Ezra come into the throne room, and, and Ezra said, I'd like to take this fortune of gold and silver out. The king said, that's fine. Go ahead. That's where I think that Ezra or Nehemiah comes into the picture. He was the man who pulled the levers that made this happen. Now, how he came to this post... Perhaps it was like uh, Mordecai and Esther who overheard some kind of a, a uh, plot to assassinate the king. Maybe he saved his life somewhere. Tradition says he had a silver spoon. Tradition says when you, uh, most poisons, if you dip a true silver spoon into it, it turns black. So I suspect he, under his cloak he always had a silver spoon. Whatever it was, it brought him to a place of prominence right beside the king every day, every bite, every swallow. It was Nehemiah. And I think he also had the gift of gab. I, I think he was a very talented conversationalist. The king always wanted somebody there to be with him. And for the most part, they never had that kind of familiarity. They, it wasn't theirs. And so someone like Nehemiah had very special privileges. It had cost him. It cost him his manhood, but it had given him privilege at that point. And God, I think, had brought him to the post for just this time. And so Nehemiah begins to pray and fast and planning. How could he come to the king? How could he present his case and hope for some kind of an answer? Because he knew that if the king turned him down, <clears throat> it might even be his death. That's the way often things happen. And so he, he uh, waits for the opportunity. Now this message began in early, the first message in meeting with Hananiah began in spring. So time has begun to flow on. And he's praying and waiting. And maybe he's waiting for the king's birthday. Tradition said that when the king's birthday came, the king would grant all kinds of privileges on that special day. But something happened before that came along, and that was the fact that 
Nehemiah couldn't hide what was the turmoil that was going on within him and his, the stress and his desire for something to happen. And so one day the king speaks up and says, uh, what's going on, Nehemiah? I, I see it in you that you are not as you were in the past. And Nehemiah is very frightened because you're not allowed to ever show any of your own feelings before the king. But he took it as an opportunity to, to present his case. In the month of Nisan, in the early spring, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you, are you not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And so Nehemiah takes the opportunity to share his wish with him. And the king said, What is it you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven, no long detailed prayers at this time, just a quick prayer of, of pleading with the Lord. And I answered the king, if it pleases him, if it pleases you, your servant has, and your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me, send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. It's interesting as he goes through this, he never once mentions the city of Jerusalem. There's kind of a bad aura about that word. There's a sense of rebellion and things. So Nehemiah slips in this saying, the cities of my father, the place where my fathers are buried, something that would resonate with the king without raising suspicion. And the king with the queen. And that's interesting too. Nehemiah had access to the, to the queen's house or to the women's house as it was to the harem. And I wouldn't doubt that he might have had some special relationship with her as well. She knew him. She knew about him. Maybe she enjoyed his company. And maybe she had something in the decision as well. And the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. So God took and orchestrated all the steps that Nehemiah would need to begin this process of returning to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls, which was an almost rebellious act without the authority of the king. And so he set up the time and place, and he said, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans Ephraim, so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest. Almost a strange request. Not so many years ago in Sweden, all the oak trees belonged to the king. They would be masks for his ships, planks for their, for their decks. You couldn't go and cut down an oak tree without his permission. And because trees were so precious and so few in the Persian Empire, if you wanted wood, you had to ask permission for it. So Nehemiah knew that. See, he had all the connections. He knew who he needed to get letters from, the governors, to make passage through areas. He knew he needed this request for wood if you're going to build gates. In fact, he was going to build himself a palace too, but he never mentioned that. And all the other things that he was going to build. He, he knew what he needed. 
He was a very organized man. And he uh, was also promised a contingent of soldiers, something very special. It's kind of cute with Ezra later on. He says, uh, it, it was dangerous making the trip back. And you can bet with all that gold and silver he was carrying, it was dangerous. But he said, I didn't dare ask the king for protection because I had told him God was going to protect me. So uh, he made his way back and he got there safely. But he would have preferred to also have a contingent of cavalry with him at that time. But it also means for Nehemiah that he's going to make much better time. Probably instead of the three months that was typical of the pilgrimage from uh, Persia back to little Judah, he probably made it in a month. So he said, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted me my request. And so Nehemiah prepares for the trip back and for the opportunity to, to rebuild the city. He has to give the king a promise he's going to return. Evidently the king was very fond of Nehemiah and wanted him to, to come back and serve him again. He trusted him. And so Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anybody what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. He probably actually was riding a mule rather than a horse. That was more typical, the, the creature of somebody in the high office. And uh, you can imagine when Nehemiah and his contingent arrived in, in Jerusalem. I think everybody was frightened to death. Here was this man and his contingent of cavalry, a man with a scarlet turban. What's he for? He's come. They, they had no idea. I don't think he was a Jew. What's he come from the, the palace? Have we paid our taxes? Have we paid enough tribute? Why is he here now? And... Nehemiah didn't share it with anyone. And I think he knew that if he did, there would come immediate resistance. He names at the other end of the ch chapter that there were three men who did not want anything done. And uh, so he knew that there was trouble if he allowed them to know what he was going to do. So his plans were, he's going to check out what has to be done, and then he's going to present it to him. And so... One night, he takes a few of his choice men and they make a tour around the walls. Took them probably most of the evening to see what needed to be done. Some of it needed to be repaired. Some of it needed to be rebuilt. A hundred years can, 150 years can change by erosion and a lot of things on there. And so he came back and he says... No one knew what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. No inside information, nobody planning anything at this point. And then I said to them all, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and the gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the generous hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They, they saw that here was a man who God had blessed in so many ways. God had blessed him, the king had blessed him, and they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work 
And then as a side note, Nehemiah mentions these three persons who have and want nothing for the success of the Jews. A man by the name of Samballot, Tobiah, and Gresham. All of them who make just fun of the Jews because they can't see anything good happening at this point. And yet God has, has planned all that's going to take place at this time now. And it's basically wrapped up in, in Jeremiah. Now chapter 3 of, of Nehemiah is one of those conundrums when you reread it. I would suspect like a good part of First Chronicles we just pass through it. It's full of names and it's full of places that we know nothing about. Someone, I guess, has counted up all the names in the Old Testament or in the Bible and says there are 3,237 names in the Bible. I didn't check it out. But I've, <laughs> I've, I've often thought it would be so fun to somewhere, even in Chronicles, say, Dwight, the son of Theodore. Wouldn't that be great, even if, you know, who knows what it means, except that I was there and I was part of it. So this, this chapter is kind of a linguistic obstacle course, and uh, it's, it's tempting to pass over it, except for one thing. These are the people who made it happen. Now, we need, we need leaders like Nehemiah. We need, we need men with vision with the ability to motivate us and to organize us and get things done. But if anything's going to really happen, we're the ones that are going to have to do it. And chapter 3 is the tale of the people who did the work. They hadn't thought about it, I don't think, of ever taking and doing anything about Jerusalem. Some of them actually lived there. We're not sure how or where. But for the most part, most of these people who actually did the work, I'm not sure they had ever thought about it. If you looked out the window and all you saw was burnt stone, buried, half buried in the earth, overgrown with grass and weeds, I'm not sure how much motivation, <clears throat> motivation we would have at that point. But now they have a purpose, they have a plan, and Nehemiah says, we have the means of doing it. And so these people begin to come and to, and to work. We have to remember that they had to bring their own food. There's no, no K rations for them here. They had to bring their own tools. There's no tool sheds around this property. And they had to be willing to give their own time. So it's toward a, probably towards the end of summer here, July, August, that the word comes, which was a good time because they hadn't been in the didn't work in the fields yet. That work was all over. The, the fall harvest of uh, grapes and uh, olives weren't ready to fall yet. So during this space, it was a perfect time to take time off. It's a lousy way to take a vacation, but it's opportunity to put to it. Elizabeth, the high priest, starting chapter 3, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Now, as you see behind me here is a, is a little replica of, of Jerusalem from Nehemiah's time. I think there is up there. And it shows ten different gates. And these became come kind of the focal center of, of the re repair work. That they worked kind of between the gates 
and then took on the project of fixing one of them. They had to rebuild the gate. They had to get the hinges for it. And the, uh, the gates, the kind of locks they had on them were kind of like U-clamps, big U-clamps that you could drop a brace in between to sturdy the door that couldn't be opened anymore. So all of this had to be prepared, and each gate had to be especially built and hung along the way. So the men here of the high priest and the priest put their shoulder to the work, which is interesting. This is not holy work. This is hard work. And yet these men went to it, led by the high priest. And they built it as far as the Tower of the Hundred. So much of this now has been lost to us. We don't know these places or the locations for sure, but we can kind of imagine some of these. The Tower of the Hundred actually was on the, usually was on the corner of, of the temple and was a protection for that whole area at that point. And so they, they finished that piece of work. We don't know how long it took them. Uh, and they fixed the sheep gate. It was a very important entrance. This is where the sacrificial lambs were driven into the courtyard to be, be sacrificed along the way. So this was really one of the key points, and it's very positive that it, the priests took the initiative here. And then the men of Jericho built the adjoining system, and we read later on that uh, people, men came from different areas, different towns around. They actually had no place in all of this, but they saw meaning in it, and so they were willing to give their time and effort to it, and they began to work on it. <clears throat> I'm going to take one minute and and do a, a Reader's Digest kind of browse through this and just mention some of the important things along the way. And then we'll come back and look at some of these. Uh, verse 3, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hanassah. They laid its beams, put it in the doors, the bolts, and the bars. Everything was back in place. At night, you could shut the gate, and you could be lock it, and you were safe inside. It was an important step. Next to him, and next to him, and we read these people built, each built their section. It was a very smart way of doing things. They built which was important to them at this point. Then there was this one little sad point. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. That's a town down in the uh, Jordan Rat Valley. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under the supervisors. So that didn't mean everybody was excited about this and helped. They didn't, the people from Tekoa, the men from Tekoa. Next to them, the repairs are made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah. Here are some outsiders again coming and giving their help along the way. One of the goldsmiths repaired his section. One of the perfume makers made his repairs. And they repaired, the, they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Actually, archaeologists have found the broad wall. It's 20 feet wide. Can you imagine building a, a wall 20 feet wide and probably 12 foot high? That would be a big project. But this was the, the, uh, the goldsmiths and the perfume men. Maybe they had resources for servants as well. Uh, down a little further, they say, and they rebuilt the Tower of the Ovens. I like that because I like bread. And the ovens in town were, for the most part, 
when it was time to bake the bread, they came to the commercial oven. So this was the bakery street here, and that was rebuilt. So uh, I think things smelled better after that. Uh, the half-ruler of Jerusalem, there were several royalty involved, and they were willing, I think because Nehemiah was a man of prestige and power, they were willing to put their lives on the line to make it happen. The valley gate was repaired. They replaced the doors and bolts and bars in place. And they also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. That was quite a project, 500 yards, 1,500 feet. That's, that's a lot of area that they took on. The fountain gate was repaired. They repaired it, put a roof over it, put in the doors and the bolts and the bars. And it's easy to pass over that, but they, these were big projects. All of this required wood that Ezra or Nehemiah had already acquisitioned and, and asked to be sent up. I'm sure it was there in time for the work. And uh, this fellow also repaired the wall of the Pool of Shalom, which was one of the, where you got your water by the king's garden as far as going down to the city of David. All of this is up on the, up on the hill of the Mount Zion along the high point in Jerusalem. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites. So there was a lot of help from, from the uh, temple people at that point. Again, the repairs were made next to him. Uh, 35 times in this chapter, uh, the repairs were made by someone next to them. So they're working together here along the way. Next to him, next to him, between him, and finally the section ends basically with people. Evidently, this one quarter contained a lot of people who had moved in for whatever reason. Maybe it wasn't so uh, much rubble and things, and were able to set up housing, and so they finished the wall in front of them. And he says, finally, the merchants opposite the inspection gate, as far as the room above the quarter, and between the room and the quarter and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So everyone took and, and did their part, as it were. It's interesting, there's about 35 groups someone has taken and checked out who have worked on parts of a wall rebuilding. Manitokia, uh, Tekoa, Gibeah, Mizba. As I've said, they're not, it wasn't this place. They lived other places, but they came and, and fixed. The gills, goldsmiths, and perfumers. Now, perfume at that time wasn't for smelling good. It was for burying people, but it was still an important uh, business. City officials, some of them owning a half of the district, some of them a quarter of districts, whole families, merchants. Verse 12, we read one man evidently didn't have any sons, and so his daughters helped out. I have a hard time imagining these women out there with crowbars trying to move rocks and, and cracking them with, with big hammers. But uh, in some parts of the world, women do a lot of hard work. And so these women helped their father to finish this section of the gate. Someone has said we work better when we work together. And that is so true of, of what we see here at this point. The amazing thing is they finished the wall in 52 days. By the end of, end of early October, the wall was, was finished. Even with the threats 
and the difficulties and all that had happened then. It was, it was done and completed. One interesting thing is all of chapter 3, Nehemiah is not mentioned one time. He, he is not there. It's only common people working together. Now, we know that he provided the vision and the motivation for it and probably many of the materials, but he's not involved, directly involved. It was, looks like a self-directed kind of operation. There were no stone cutters or carpenters mentioned. These are common people who, when the occasion needed it, they either learned how or they made do with their, with their work on there. In many, way God, in many ways, God builds his church with different people, with different gifts. We need leaders. We need dedicated leaders. But we also need dedicated followers. And sometimes that's a lot more difficult. As we look at our own lives, we see that sometimes we are leaders. Sometimes we're leaders in our home. We have to lead our children, take care of our families. But then we go off to work and we've got a boss or a, or a lead who's, who's over us, in charge of us. And sometimes we're that lead as well. And so there's kind of a, a step of leadership and following. And good followers are as ever important as good leaders if anything is going to be done. Paul writing in a, in a letter to Corinthians chapter 12 reminds us that we are a body in process. Many parts, all important. We can't get along without our toes, even though we need our eyes. We need our hands. We need our heart. All of, all of these parts are important. Paul points out again and again that the body only functions when each part is, is able to do its special function and carry out what it's responsible for along the way. Cooperation is an important factor, and we see it here. Someone has written, coming together is a good beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is success. And as we look at our, our ministries and our relationships within the body, they are just like that. They are important when we have our part to play on that. We need to labor together. Sometimes we lead and sometimes we follow. Community is like that. We need effective leaders, but we really, truly need dedicated followers as well. And God blesses both. God blesses both. Yes, then the end of his, his message says this, some people in the church are constructionists. We've been looking at this here in Nehemiah's work and life. They were important, every one of them. Nehemiah was important to get things going, to, to organize and to, to facilitate it. But each person at their own corner was important. Some people are destructionists. And we haven't looked much at that this morning like Sam Ballot and his crew, but there are people who are constantly trying to destroy the work that we are about, the important work that God has given to us. And then finally, there are some obstructionists. 
I think they're the dangerous, most dangerous kind. They're like the men from Tekoa who didn't want to put their shoulder to the work. And so as we, we look at the ministry of the body, we see that God has put it together in such a way that each person is important. And we have our place, we have our function, and if there's going to be success, we need to do what God has put in our heart to make it all happen. Are we a constructionist today? I hope we're not a destructionist. Sometimes we get to be obstructionists as we have other ideas and we, we can't seem to find our place. But God will show us as we move on along with it. Yesterday has, has less, left us a message of encouragement. Being a follower is important. God's work, each part of us had its important place. And I hope today that as it touches your heart, you will remember and desire more to be that follower that he has sent us to be. Shall we pray together? Lord, thank you for Nehemiah and his faithfulness. In spite of his limitations, we know that you have given him the opportunity to lead to a special project. Lord, each of us here has our own, our own heart, something that you have given us especially to do and to be. And so I pray today that it will be activated. Give us the courage to move forward. May we use our strength and our abilities to see it through. And may the body here be blessed and grow because of our faithfulness. For we thank you in our Savior's name. Amen.